Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Berlin, and I'd like to welcome a special guest, Coral Doherty, to the podcast today. Coral, it's wonderful to have you. Welcome. Hi, thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to be on this podcast with you today, and thanks so much for inviting me. Well, um, we we wouldn't miss a chance to chat with you. Coral is the winning has the winning idea from our veterinary visionaries solving event this year. Um, so you probably have been seeing you know uh, posts about it. It was uh, an event basically where we had a, a platform up where people could submit ideas to help us solve a big issue. And in this case, it was the idea of creating sustainable and scalable solutions for mental health and well-being for veterinary professionals. And we had some incredible ideas and Corals rose to the top. Uh, our evaluators felt that it was that her idea was the most um, scalable and implementable of the ideas that were submitted um, and could have the some of the greatest effect. So that was a really, really cool initiative. And I was um, I was just blown away by the entries. But before we get to your idea, just a little background there on why you're here. Um, but before we get to your idea, could you just give us a little bit of, uh, you know, who you are, what you do in the veterinary world and how you came to be here? Oh, sure thing. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit of an interesting story myself when I listen to it. Um, I actually started in veterinary medicine when I was 12. I um, needed a part-time job and was interested in working in a veterinary clinic. And then through high school, I ended up doing a working practicum out of that clinic. And I was raised in Southern Ontario. After graduating tech school, I came out here to Winnipeg and worked in practice out here. Eventually, throughout uh, my career, I ended up in various workplaces across the prairies and in the UK and saw the the face of how the people that I was serving as a sales professional, um, they could feel so much, you could feel the thickness of the stress walking in those workplaces. And you always hope that um, you were helping, helping to brighten their day when you walk through to not just talk about your product, but also to connect with them and give them some resilience and, um, you know, encourage them. And as they go through their day, when I ended up having um, children and had to make some career choices, I decided that I would go into practice management um, as a freelance manager and assist practices with their uh, workplace management uh, business as well as HR. When I did that, I was asked to do a presentation in 2019 on mental health for veterinary teams. And at the time, I honestly didn't realize that there was actually some statistics um, to do with mental health and veterinary workplaces. And at the time, I was just finishing up a quality management certificate at the University of Manitoba, which is all about systems and processes and uh, work design, problem solving, and efficiencies. And the number one reason that we're here is customer service. So really to endeavor to do our best um, to solve problems to serve our customers the best we can. So those two aligned and I came across the Canadian standard for psychological health and safety and connected with Dr. Kathy Kyle in Calgary. 
And her, her and I shared a huge vision on what we could do uh, together and collaboratively to improve workplace mental health. And at the time, I was it was great timing because there was a course being offered here in Winnipeg for me to become a certified psychological health and safety advisor through the Canadian Mental Health Association. And it just opened my eyes and gave me the tools and resources I needed in order to kind of start, you know, running with it and trying to offer some knowledge into the veterinary wellness space. And, um, and that's, I think that's how I got here. And I think it's, I think it's, uh, if I had told myself when I was 12, where that, where I've ended up, I don't know that I would have known that I was going to be here. <laughs> but it's I, yeah. It's amazing the directions life takes us and um and how like each step of your journey sort of unfolded through that what you just said and that's really cool like I'm really glad that you had mm-hmm. sort of a winding road to get here that led you into this space because as we know you know these these issues aren't new they're just things that we didn't use to talk about and yeah that's the biggest thing that I've learned a lot about is stigma Mm-hmm. And how much the role of stigma has actually got us where we're at today. And I do respect those people who still don't want to talk about their mental health at work because they may have come from a generation where that was the status quo. But we are finding that through research and through the studies that we've seen going back to 1979, that the tools and resources we didn't have in 1979 until now, we we just didn't have, we didn't know about. So stigma, maybe stigma was a great solution. Don't talk about it. And then maybe we don't have to deal with it. But now we have the tools and resources. So we need to start talking about mental health at work because we can help now and we can prevent psychological injuries from happening. We can, um, you know, learn from the people that have gone through the painful psychological injuries and recovered um, or those who have, have had a cost to their caring, that we can actually take that and move forward and improve the lives of our veterinary professionals. All right. Awesome. Well, we're going to talk a lot about that. Um, I want to put a pin in what you just said there about um, just the phrase psychological injuries. Um, I want to get back to that. But uh, before we do, I have a fun question for you because I learned a lot about people this way. If you were a dog, what breed of dog would you be? How that I, you know, there are so many dogs I could be. And the first one actually came to (laughs) That came to mind was actually a golden retriever. But I thought, you know what? I'm not always very obedient. <laughs> I know a lot of golden retrievers that aren't always obedient. Yeah, I know. I know. And I certainly didn't carry that very many tennis balls. I'm not very good at tennis, actually. So um, then I thought, you know what? Actually, I think if I was to align what my spirit is, my spirit seems to be really helping people and doing as much as I can and sort of going um, in the space where no one's been before. So I think about like a St. Bernard or, or a Newfoundland dog, because they're the ones that are going in the mountains, doing dangerous things, jumping in oceans and trying to save people. They have to, you know, make errors like I do and um, learn from their errors and improve and, you know, go through the training and um, do their best every day. And that's all I can do. So that's me. I love that. <laughs> <I'm a> hybrid. <laughs> I love that. Hopefully you don't drool as much. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? When there's a good steak put in front of me, it's situational, right? That's right. That's right. But I I was raised with manners, so I do. No judgment, you know. Um, Well, thanks. I that is an unusual answer, and I love that. 
like a, a rescue dog, you know, that's yeah. really cool. What could be cooler than that? I always love, love learning about those. So, yeah, all right. I like, well, I like the question. It was a good question. <laughs> all right. Let's dive into it. So yeah. you, your idea was the the one that rose to the top in veterinary visionaries. Mm-hmm. And it was about um, psychological safety that's and right. how we can establish some standards for psychological safety in the workplace in veterinary medicine. Can you start out by talking about what psychological safety is? And going back to what you just said, psychological injuries, a lot of people listening probably are thinking, well, that's not me. Like I'm just Mm -hmm. burned out or I'm just sad, or I'm just don't really want to go to work today. You know, what does the psychological injury mean exactly? So a psychological, well, starting at psychological safety, um, psychological safety is a lot, um, there's two definitions, really. Dr. Amy Edmondson was one of the first pioneers when it comes to talking about psychological safety, and that's about building trust um, between the colleagues as well as management and feeling safe to make mistakes, feeling vulnerable, and actually being encouraged to push forward and and um, uh, ask the questions that you need in order to um, better understand your role without feeling like you have fear or retribution or retaliation. So that's one definition of um, psychological safety. And the other one is really about uh, a way of working so that you reduce the stress associated with working because we know that uh, stress um, manifests itself in many different ways. It does happen physiologically. We'll see some uh, changes in our um, physical well-being. Those are some of the early symptoms. But then again, if you think if you don't look after stress, sometimes we wait long enough and then we really listen to our bodies when they start to hurt. Um, we start to take medications to try and um, deal with that, whether it's like diabetes, high blood pressure, um, infertility or, or hormone, hormone imbalances. Those sorts of things um, start to happen. But also when we have stress that's long lasting and we haven't done anything about it, we can incur a psychological injury. So as it persists, it goes through phases of things like burnout, compassion fatigue, secondary vicarious trauma. So you'll um, sometimes uh, hear that as PTSD. And then also we'll see anxiety and depression. We'll see other types of mental illnesses that can develop. It's a tough subject. And I also keep in mind that anybody I speak to may have already incurred their own psychological injury and been able to heal and overcome. But at, at some point, of course, we always do get that a sensation of PTSD where you've been there, done that, and you know the warning signals and the red flag, and you know what to do to keep yourself safe. But then I know we all have lost um, and heard of colleagues that we've lost to um, psychological injuries. And um, and that's where the, the trail goes to if we don't nip stress in the bud and recognize the physical symptoms of stress um, and have the correct tools and training on board. That is psychological safety where we can prevent those type of psychological injuries by nipping them in the bud and looking at some mental health metrics really to track to track um, the early early symptoms and then an ongoing system to do check-ins. Almost like you would with the blood glucose curve for a cat. You don't just start you know, um, giving it tons of insulin. You want to check along the way and make sure you're giving the right amount of insulin. So this is like that type of psychological safety. Well, that makes so much sense. And, you know, one thing I wanted to clarify too, is like, you know, you mentioned psychological injury and that could be something really serious and something that is, Mm -hmm. is incredibly, you know, that ends up catastrophic to a person's health um, and well-being. but we psychological injury doesn't have to be 
something like a huge major event that happens, right? It can be a consequence of little things that build up over time or things that happen day to day that we might not even see as a problem, but over time they build up because we, especially if we haven't had the tools to deal with them or talk about them. Is that true? That is true. But someone also uh, said to me, the first time that you'll ever have a psychological injury is when you're asked to do something outside your comfort zone. So depending on what that is and what the result of that could be. So as an example, if um, let's say you're short staffed and you've just asked the veterinary um, assistant to um, step in and help out in surgery. And that person's saying, you know what, I wasn't trained to do this, but I know you need me to help. So I'm here because there's nobody else. And then all of a sudden the patient stops breathing. And now what's supposed to happen, right? The veterinarian is going to try and coach how you bag an animal. So, and then what happens there, that outcome is what is going to start the ball rolling of a psychological injury because that person was asked to do something outside their comfort zone. And what was, what was the end result? I mean, it could have been a good result. It could have been a bad result, but either way, um, there has to be follow-up and the debriefing after that, because if a person is put in that situation, just because they're getting a paycheck doesn't mean it's okay to push somebody beyond their, their limits, I think is what I, what it comes down to really. But that makes sense to me because like what you say, it could be one instance or it could be multiple instances that generate a psychological injury and they can be, um, you know, it's always the work that we do, but it's the, also the emotional component of our jobs that that yeah. predisposes us to those injuries yeah and and I, I guess i should say you know we know really well how to manage physical injuries on the job we can totally keep ourselves safe we can keep wearing our lead x-ray gloves i've never seen the effect of x-rays on my hands but i keep wearing my gloves right i want i know i need to have protection against that and it's the same thing with psychological injuries we don't always see them happening but we have to start protecting ourselves against them that's a great analogy. I haven't heard that analogy before. And, and I really like that. And, you know, I was listening to you talk about people being pushed past their comfort zone um, and out of their comfort zone to ask to do things that maybe they don't feel ready for. And that's like our entire lives, <laughs> you know, in vet med, yeah. especially if you're a recent graduate, you know, an early career graduate of vet or tech school, you're, mm-hmm. or, an, or a vet assistant who's in training, you know, you're, everything you do is new. And just because you learned about it in a book doesn't mean you feel ready to go in and do that on an operating table or talk to a client about it and have them be making life or death decisions because of what you say. And that over time is so stressful, you know? Um, So I, I can certainly see why that would mean we are all at great risk for that psychological injury because we all have different boundaries, but we're taught that we're not supposed to draw them in those situations, mm. you know, we're supposed to say yes yeah. and want to jump in and do what we're trained do to do, even if right. we aren't really right. trained to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And that's a good point too, because that brings me back to also the psychological health and safety management system, because um, if an employee knows that they have been pushed beyond their comfort zone, they should also know the recourse of what they can do to deal with that situation and how they felt. And you see, I think for years and years, um, we haven't had the tools or resources to know what to do about that, but we do now. Other than that, we were always told we need to have more self-care, maybe just need a day off, 
Mm-hmm. You need more sleep. You do some yoga. Yeah, yeah. Do some yoga, more yoga. Yeah. Um, but now we can actually see that we can train our managers and leaders to be sensitive and helpful. And that person should be able to feel free to talk to their manager leader and say, hey, listen, I was pushed out of my comfort zone and I didn't feel very good about it. What can we do so that either either I don't have to do that again or if I do have to do it again, can I have some training just ahead of time so that next time I go to do it, I know what I'm doing. So oftentimes it's just an opportunity for more training. But right now, if you don't feel safe telling your manager or your leader that you have felt that way, then you're on your own. You're isolated. Mm-hmm. You, yeah, you don't have the tools or resources at your disposal. Well, it's up to you to call EAP. And I honestly, I ask everybody, I'm like, who, who answers that phone on the end of your EAP, like your helpline? And everyone's like, I don't know. I said, well, you know what? You're feeling good today. Give them a call and just talk to them and see what they're going to tell you. Because then you have the practice that when you do feel crummy, you know exactly what you're going to experience when you call for help. That way, calling for help isn't out of your comfort zone also, because exactly. that keeps us from doing it a lot of the That's time. That's so true. Yeah. 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 Um, so your idea, um, you know, that was a fantastic background. And I love the context that you use there, you know, um, the ways that we can actually train people to create an environment that's psychologically safe. Um, but what let's go back to your idea. Um, you had talked mm-hmm. about some standards that already exist in places mm-hmm. for psychological safety in the workplace. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. It's quite interesting, actually. Um, here in Canada, the conversation started actually at the government level in 2006. They noticed that the, a high number of people were off on um, long-term disability And they couldn't figure out why. So they analyzed the data and they found out that 46% of long-term disability was due to mental illness. And they followed the rabbit trail and found out workplace has a lot to do with it, a lot to do with it. And, And the multiples of people around the globe that are in workplaces, we have a lot of really stressed out people or exposed people, really, that, you know, a lot of people love their job and everything's great and there's good stress and there's bad stress. But what happened was they decided to create a Mental Health Commission of Canada, and they were commissioned to to develop the National Standard for Psychological Health and Safety here in Canada. The document was published by the Canadian Standards Association, which is also um, recognized by ISO, so the International Standards Organization. So the the actual quality of this standard is a global standard quality. And it's a framework that was published in 2013 to help Canadian workplaces foster psychological health and safety and improve mental health at work. So promote mental health at work and prevent psychological harm. And they developed um, through this scientific research, they determined that there were 13 psychosocial um, factors that affect workplace mental health. So that was here in Canada. Um, Previous to that, the UK actually, um, um, Health and Safety Executive HSC in the UK had developed a workplace standard. It just didn't write it in a universal language like Canada did. They went to a CSA, the Canada Standards Association, and had it printed that way. But um, the UK did, and uh, I know in Europe, like all throughout Europe, um, Holland, Denmark, places like that, they've been doing really well. New Zealand has been doing really well. And in fact, there's... um, is quite a bit of interest in New Zealand and Australia, 
quite a bit of interesting legislation that has come along just recently in the last few weeks where there actually are um, standards and penalties associated with not following the standards in those countries. Um, they are reviewing the Canadian standard um, this, I think, this year, and there should be a revision um, posted next year for the Canadian standard. So uh, it does work. And as long as it's scientifically proven that they do work, and here in Canada, they did follow the first 40 businesses that implemented the standard, which was amazing. And there were some uh, well-recognized uh, companies, big and small, that um, they they were allowing the Mental Health Commission of Canada to track what they did, um, do some surveys and find out uh, what was the easiest thing, what was the neatest thing, um, the easiest <laughs> The easiest, the hardest thing, and what was the um, outcome? Uh, what did they find? So what are the results of implementing um, psychological health and safety standards? So that's like the piece de resistance because really a lot of times in veterinary medicine, we don't want to do anything just off of someone's opinion or thought. We want scientific data research. We want numbers. And that's what this standard does. So when I talk about a standardized approach, my 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 idea was based on what's working here in Canada as far as the framework. Um, it's a plan, do, check, act um, quality framework that, that they've applied. And so um, it, it applies it in a various, uh, in a top-down level. So the top management, as long as they believe in it and they make a policy statement, and then um, it cascades down so that all employees understand and believe that this is what they're going to do and they are all committed to it and it becomes a continuous improvement and evolving um, system. So it's not set in stone. It's something that continuously improves and evolves. That is, that's super cool. Are, are there um, standards for psychological health and safety for workplaces in the U.S. currently? That is such a good question. It is um, a little bit of a wild card in the U.S. That sounds about right. <laughs> Canada's got it together for years and we are just doing whatever we want. <laughs> well, you know what? we, we still have a long way to go here in Canada, but um, <laughs> in the U.S. I've been doing a bit of research and there are some resources and there are some early signs that there are going to be um, some standards, I guess, coming along that um, there's actually a group that is trying to implement a workplace safety act. And that has to do with um, psychological health and safety. Uh, it's quite a large movement actually. And uh, I'd like to see it get some ground. It had to do with a Kroger employee who was subjected to bullying and harassment um, for, I think it was a, a short, actually a short term, but it was, it was bad enough that actually um, he felt so isolated. He felt so bad about himself, I think. And his heart hurt so much that he took his own life. Um, and that is not a choice. That is a psychological injury. That is um, the pain hurting so much that we just have to, you know, your your physiological response is to end the pain. And I think that also leads to, um, into the conversation of stigma, why people don't want to talk about it, is because people might think that it's a choice, but it's not a choice. It's actually your body turning on itself, almost like an autoimmune disease, really. But, um, yes, yeah, so in the U.S., there are some early signs. Now, in the U.S., they understand um, more so the Americans understand ISO standards more than anyone else. 
And so ISO has a new standard that just came out last July. Was it 2020 or 2021? It's ISO 45003. So if a person is familiar with the ISO standards, there was an earlier one for occupational health and safety that did not incorporate um, psychological health and safety. And this one is specific to psychological health and safety. So, you know, the U.S. is getting there. But right now there aren't any um, legislative practices that say employees are should be protected from psychological harm. They are protected from physical harm right now in the U.S., but not psychological. Um, here in Canada, there is legislation in place, varying provinces at varying provincial level, where um, cases of PTSD are actually covered by um, legislation that this is a due diligence, this is a duty of care of all employee employers here in Canada. They have to show a duty of care. And in um, a court of law, you would have to um, show that you did try to protect your workers against um, either harassment, bullying, or um, psychological harm. Uh, the big one is harassment and bullying, that is for sure. Most employers understand that here, but they're not sure how to actually enforce it. And that's the nuance. And, and that's happening in every veterinary workplace, honestly, just because of the, the level of burnout mm-hmm. and um, the miscommunications that we're seeing. So. Well, yeah, and, and some of the bullying is from leadership. And well, so, yeah. you know, how does that how, how does that fit in when the people who have to enforce the standard are the problem, <laughs> which that's such a good question, because I've actually learned as I'm doing this more and more that oftentimes people who are bullies actually are psychologically injured mm-hmm. and they don't recognize it. They don't see it because yeah. they're so busy running from the pain they're taking out. Well, someone said to me, it's like a redirected aggression in a cat. <laughs> it's not right. Beautiful. We understand that really well in animals. Like if we mistreat exactly. them, they're going to act out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's just a matter of reaching out and making them a part of this, um, this system. And I, like I sort of mentioned, um, I know I can't, uh, you know, reach everybody when it comes to standardization. And there are going to people, be people that are not going to embrace the standards because they're going to wait till legislation enforces them to do it. Um, they don't want to pay a penalty for it. And maybe it seems like a lot of work. But you know what? It's not a lot of work. It's actually very, very, you know, small steps towards a better system. You don't have to make big changes all at once. In fact, most times they don't recommend that. It's not psychologically safe. <laughs> So, so we do baby steps. We do small micro, micro changes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you had mentioned a little bit there about people who, who thought it was too much work or didn't really want to buy into the idea that this is something that we need. You know, I love what you said before about how we protect, like we would never think of sending our people in to take radiographs without their lead shields. Um, And we, we know OSHA has these rules and we follow the rules, you know, we will have to watch our OSHA training videos and we have the labels on everything about hazardous substances. And, um, and I, I think that makes perfect sense to me, but there are a fair number of people, I think in veterinary medicine still who believe that this is a soft science and I'm making air Mm -hmm. quotes, you know, that the science here is about feelings. And like, even if we have evidence Um, We have evidence that people are feeling a certain way and that makes it something that we, you know, 
Like, why do we all of a sudden have to spend so much time keeping people from feeling bad? And I'm saying that to play devil's advocate because yeah. of, um, you know, we've all been on Facebook. <laughs> so. I, know, I know, I know. Oh, that's a good point. Actually, I spoke to Clint Latham about that technology when it comes to psychological safety. And it was a real eye opener because it made me realize what, what he said is that everybody does have different social medias and there are algorithms that affect your reality. They affect your perception of what is real. So if you are feeling a certain way and you're doing a search on that, you'll see that feed come in. You know, like I was curious about maybe getting a hot tub. Now I'm seeing all these hot tub like deals coming my way. <laughs> so it does change your perception and it does affect how people interact um, in the workplace. And um, there was something you said about um, people who uh, uh, think it's a soft, like a soft thing. And I think to myself, um, softness sometimes is actually a suppression of what you really want to say. And we have tried being vulnerable and explaining what it is that we want or how we feel or what we need. And we've been shut down. We've been hurt. And it hasn't been a good experience. And so the muscle memory tells us we shouldn't be vulnerable. We should actually just kind of, you know, put up a shield, put up the brick wall and then just be tough. And that could manifest in in other ways of forms of control because you don't have that feeling of control internally. And so um, when we're told to play nice and that there's soft skills, to me that actually says that we need a better way of communicating where there is less fear, we have to reduce the fear And then I think to myself, if we can't communicate, then how can we do the best for our patients? And I know we um, always do do our best for our patients, but if we can't communicate properly and we need something specific and we're going to be asked a question as to why we're requesting that, that becomes really uncomfortable. Um, And that's where I think that question about soft skills come in. The other thing... um, is about mental health metrics takes the soft skills away. If you find out that, um, like, let's say your best friend came came back from work and said, you know, I was so stressed out. I'm so done with this. Um, it's been a really bad day and it seems like it's never ending. And you said, you know what, let's just see how you're feeling. Let's do an assessment and just see, are you burnt out or is your resilience low? And you do an assessment, you get a number and you find out, oh my gosh, your resilience is actually super low. So no wonder you feel so crummy you're not that you're burnt out at all because your burnout score doesn't show that, but it shows your resilience is really low. So let's do something to foster your resilience and that's going to help you feel better. And so that takes the soft part out of it and gives us some hard numbers to work with. Interesting. Oh my gosh. There's so many different questions keep popping up into my head, like while you're talking <laughs> and we could, we'll be it. on, we'll be that's talking great. all day if I ask uh, them all. Um, well, but that. A- you know, I'm talk- like a tap. Like you start asking these questions, <laughs> and it just keeps running out. And I, I know I drive some people crazy. And uh, <laughs> no, anyways, I, I'm excited about it. Obviously. Yeah, well, that's great. And we need people who are so excited about it and so persistent about like, this is going to help us. This is what we need. Look at the evidence that says this mm-hmm. will help us. It's not just about like, you know, ordering pizza once a week or like putting a Keurig in the break room, right? It's about making it. We have to do the work. You know, we're in a high risk profession for mental health injuries. We have to do the work. We have to, as a profession, go shoulder to shoulder, employer to employee and tackle this because they are doing it already with first responders, paramedics, Mm -hmm. 
firefighters and the military. They're using these tools successfully and they're helping to protect their employees and their workers against psychological injuries. So we got to catch up and we got to get going on that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, So question for you, you know, there are many people listening to this podcast, I hope that are not leaders by title in their practice. Um, and they may not be able to make decisions. So like, mm-hmm. I know standards for the profession would be wonderful and it's going to take a while for that to happen, but I hope that it does happen. But each individual practice can start fostering its own culture of psychological safety. Um, but what can a person who's not in a leadership role within the practice mm-hmm. do to start that ball rolling? You know, I mean, I know some practices are very toxic and that's probably not the place you're going to make a huge difference from inside the team, but who knows? But like, if you're in a good practice where the intention is good and everybody's just really busy and you yeah, want to yeah. start this conversation, what yeah. can you do? I think the best thing to do is have a party and form a joint health and safety committee. Love that. So, Yes. Because it should be a really fun thing. It shouldn't be drudgery and work. It should be, we are going to like take this on. We are going to be positive about it because it's easy to get turned around and feel really negative and let those negativity like, and like, if you're going to move forward, don't reflect back and try and undo the past. Just let it go and then move forward with some new policies and programs and some things you want to work on. The first thing would be a code of ethics. You know, you don't need leadership to tell you that to form a code of ethics between each other, how you're going to feel working with each other, what is acceptable behavior and what is actually unacceptable. And what are you going to do to keep that person accountable to staying to the code of ethics? So if someone's having a bad day and they've broken the code of ethics and you know it, how, what what are you allowed to say to that person? Can you say, you know what, Sue, you are making me laugh because you're breaking of rule on the code of ethics. And then, you know, that's the permission is that you can actually say that to Sue and she'll say, Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, Coral, I, you're right. I'm really sorry. Just having a bad day and I'm not feeling like myself today. So, so then that, that empowers people that don't have power and authority to look after their own self and their group. If a person actually doesn't feel like they belong at the group, they need to protect themselves with mental health hygiene Mental health hygiene is really just waking up every day and checking in with yourself. How are you feeling about going to work today? Are you dreading it? Because if you're dreading it, you better reach out for that EAP. You need to call them because if you're dreading going to work, you may actually be experiencing early signs of a mental health illness or an injury. That is actually, if you leave it alone and you hope it goes away, just, just don't ignore that. Like just call. I actually have this really great lady on the other end of my phone. Her name's Iris. And if she hasn't heard from me for a while, because she sends me little exercises to do, if she hasn't heard from me for a while and I haven't finished my exercises, she sends me a message and she says, hey, Coral, like, you got to do these messages, um, these like little exercises. And um, there's lots of apps out there to help with these types of things. So CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy, actually can come free in an app. Um, There's lots of them out there. There have been some studies to say which ones are better, which ones are not so good. But I'll tell you what, if you're not doing anything at all, just, just start doing something and, you know, create your own psychological safety bubble and look after your own mental health. You can't rescue and save everybody else, but you need to look after yourself. So uh, note that Coral is not saying just go do more yoga. 
<laughs> these are evidence-based um, practices yeah. that can help support your own mental health um, and, and well-being, even if you're not in an environment that is particularly supportive of it. So yeah. it, it is an intersection of personal responsibility and organizational responsibility, right? I love that. That is so true. That is exactly what it is. And the other thing that they can do is actually find some assessments. There are some burnout assessments, resilience assessments. There are the pro qual. They need to actually put a number on it. And they need, because you see, the funny thing is managers are really overwhelmed right now because employees come to them and they say, I have a problem. And the manager's like, well, what is it? And the employee says, well, I don't know, but I have a problem. So help me with it. (laughs) Hoping that the employer and the manager have the solutions, but honestly, they don't because the employee doesn't know what's wrong. So if the employee could put their finger on that and do an assessment and say, you know what, my burnout score is super high. My resilience is really low. And actually, when I look at my compassion satisfaction, it's really low. So I think I'm heading into compassion fatigue. I need to do something about that. And I need to reach out to the EAP or do you have any more resources resources to help me with that? That's what I'm talking about. That's the, the language we need to start learning is like you say, the intersection between um, how the employer and the employee can talk to each other with a new language to determine better workplace efficiency and work design. I love that. And we, we've had a couple of episodes on the podcast already who, um, you know, where we've talked about this, we've talked about what resilience really means. And we've talked about psychological safety before we had, um, a veterinarian and one of his team, um, and a, a cognitive behavioral therapist who works with them, uh, come on and talk about, what they've done to try to change the language, you know, give themselves a common language to talk to each other. So it really can be done, but, and I just want to say, you've mentioned a lot of resources, which are fantastic. And we'll link as many as we can in the show notes. So if you're listening, you're like, what did she say? Look in the show notes. Cause we'll, we'll link a bunch yeah. of stuff like the pro qual yeah. assessment and um, you know, uh, some apps, if you have suggestions, the EAP that you keep uh, mentioning is an employee assistance program, correct? Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. Yes. That's mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and I don't know what the numbers are out there. Yeah. But I would love it if um, I could find out more of what the numbers are for each state. I don't know if there's a like a nationwide one or is it just each state? I don't know. But. So yeah, the EAP, I believe in, in the US is a benefit that your employer needs to elect to provide. So if your employer has an EAP on their health plan, then are there um, benefits plan, then you have access to it. But a lot of people don't know about it. So an employee assistance program is basically you get to talk to somebody um, and you don't have to pay for it. And you get a certain number of sessions um, provided by as, as one of your benefits from your employer. But many employers offer it and the employees don't know. And so yeah. they say, well, no one's using it. So I'm going to stop offering it. But the employees don't know what it is. So if you want to know if your employer offers an EAP, you should ask them because in the U.S. it's not a guarantee. Um, And in fact, that was another winning idea on the Veterinary Visionaries Board, which was a universal EAP. Yeah, Yeah, that was a vet student who thought about that. Um, So I think that's a fantastic idea. Everything costs money, but what could be more worth investment from our organizations and our our governing bodies um, than this type of healthcare that will keep people in the field, keep people working and keep people healthy. You know, right now we're bleeding people. So we need all the help we can get. Absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. So last question before I let you go, Um, we are talking about organizations having an obligation to support their 
teams in this way. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I'm going to read a quote that you included in your submission um, from Canada's National Psychological Health and Safety Standard. And it says, organizations are responsible for identifying hazards and minimizing the risks associated with them. The participation of workers in all stages of the process is critical to the success of managing psychosocial risks. So if you had left out the word psychosocial at the end, this could be an OSHA statement, right? It could be like, everybody on the team has an obligation to not spill hazardous materials and leave them there, right? (laughs) And you put the psychosocial in there and suddenly it's like, oh, the organization is obligated to do this and they have to involve the workers in identifying and managing these risks. That to me feels like a paradigm shift in veterinary Mm -hmm. medicine. Would you agree? Do you you feel like that's going to require a big change in the way we think? Oh, yeah, that's that's it. Is it going to require a big change in the way we think? You know, it will be for some workplaces, but I think other workplaces who have realized that the workers actually have the answers and they empower the workers. The workers are ones that are going through those psychosocial hazards I mean, whatever, whatever level that you're working at in your organization, you have different psychosocial risks Um, and psychosocial risks just means um, how you feel in a social setting. Do you feel social belonging? Do you feel social isolation? Do you feel social anxiety? Do you feel social agitation? So it all has to do with how you feel as as a person within a social setting. So your psychosocial risks may be different from one person to another. And for an employer to say, hey, you know what, I'm just going to set this out and not ask you if this is good enough. <laughs> you know, um, they may think that they're doing the best because they want to you know, not stress out the worker and ask more information. But actually, it, it will alleviate burnout, oddly enough, when you ask a worker to tell them what they could do to change the way that that person is working that actually is one step of alleviating burnout. Um, it's not a day off and it's not more yoga and it's not a pizza party. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, those things are nice, but they're not going to fix this problem. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, for, for workplaces that already realize that work design is the problem, that'll be a huge paradigm shift. But for workplaces who realize that it's a workflow design issue, it should be actually a walk in the park. It should be like a baby step towards psychosocial safety management really is what it is. It's a continual improvement. It's never set in stone. It's always, is this working? Okay. It's not working. We got to change or improve it. Is that working? No. Okay. Well, that is working. Let's just stick with that, you know, and then continually check in every six months, every one year. And whenever there's a new team member that joins, we have to reestablish what's the code of ethics. What's the cultural norms? How do we treat each other? Because it's like um, making a cake. If you put too much salt in, it's not going to taste good. So even though it's just one ingredient, we have to yeah. we have to adjust it. Yeah, yeah. So smart. Um, and I, I, with the right standards, right, we should be able to help both large and small organizations take on this mm-hmm. challenge. Because the like you said, the workers are the key. So the teams are the key. And they'll tell you what in that particular workplace with that particular team is going to be important. Um, It's going to be most important. Yeah. I think it's just um, practice vulnerability for these um, workplaces who have never done a paradigm shift. Do a baby step. Just try something really small and just, um, yeah, just try. You just don't know. I mean, what's going to happen, right? You don't know. Yeah. Yeah. 
Coral, thank you so much. Um, I, like I said, I, I have so many more questions. I hope I can ask you one day, I know, <laughs> but not today. Awesome. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but this but. is this is such an important field, and there are people in the U.S. too who are talking about this now. And I know that you've been you've been working with them um, because they're using Canada's standard as a model for what they want to help build here. And so I really feel like it's a, it's a fantastic path and one that can win over some of the doubters just because of how mm-hmm. evidence-based it is and how much mm-hmm. it has helped in other places. So That's thank you so sure. much for spending yeah. so much time with us and for submitting to veterinary visionaries. Like, yeah, well, thanks for the encouragement from um, Garth Jordan to, yeah. you know, that the energy and enthusiasm he put into it, the encouragement to submit and also, I'll be going over in more depth what those psychosocial factors are um, in Miami in September, on September 23rd at the Gulf Atlantic Veterinary Conference. So if anybody's curious and wants to know more, that's where I'll be. Awesome. <laughs> Coral, thank you. And we'll put all those links that we can into the show notes so you can look up some of the resources that Coral mentioned. But um, this has been a pleasure. And I hope we get to talk yeah. again because you're doing amazing things for the field. Thanks so much for asking me to come on and talk. Like I'm, like I say, I'm just like a tap. So I have to regulate myself. (laughs) (laughs) Don't regulate too much. Okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll catch you next time on Central Line. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.